beliefs such as do men and women differ on average in their uh, cognitive or personality characteristics? Are uh, police shootings racially biased? Um, is, uh, is there such a thing as rapid onset gender dysphoria? And are there uh, social influences in the uh, massive growth of transgender uh, adolescents or pre-adolescents? Uh, good luck in saying that we should try to get to the bottom of those answers by looking at, at uh, data. Those are cases where merely uh, uh, proposing, even asking those questions can sometimes teach people and there can be an, uh, uh, efforts to, to cancel them for right. uh, this. The acceptable belief is the one that aligns with certain uh, supposedly social justice objectives. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart and Pins the Podcat with the introduction to the very, very, very special 100th episode of Robinson's podcast with the exceptional Steven Pinker. And Steve, who pretty much everyone will be familiar with, is Johnstone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard and among today's most recognizable public intellectuals. And I suppose that while this may literally be because of his phenomenal hair, which I'm quite jealous of, it's predominantly for the strength of his work. And so Steve is an experimental cognitive psychologist, and he writes on language and mind and their relationship to the evolution of human nature. And in this spirit, he's the author of a number of terrific books like The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now, the content from some of the content, at least, from both of which make their appearance in this conversation. But in this episode, we discuss Steve's most recent book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters, which came out in the fall. And Steve identifies a number of dimensions to rational thought. So logic, Bayesian reasoning, an understanding of probability, decision theory, a few others. And we talk about the evolutionary basis of rationality, how rationality is subverted by conspiratorial thinking and the madness of crowds and some other factors, and how more broadly it relates to enlightenment and human progress. But I really think that of crucial importance, not just for the podcast, because somehow this hasn't come up in the past 99 episodes of the show, or academia, uh, but really the entire human world, is that we also talk about free speech, its relationship to rationality, and how it is very, very much under siege in many quarters today. And as I was thinking about this after we spoke my mind kept coming back to a quotation from Roy Sieber, who was a historian of African art. And Roy Sieber wrote, The history of taste is a story of constantly shifting attitudes, which are not cumulative, and which are neither inevitable nor infallible beyond the moment they are in favor. And I think I first came across this quote in high school, and it's often on my mind, because independent of taste in 
African art or art in general, I find it so often relevant because what Sieber is so perceptively pointing out is that we, people in general, always feel that we're at the apex of civilization. Even if this doesn't extend to contemporary scientists or thinkers who recognize there's always progress to be made, people have always thought that they'd reached the pinnacle of morality or artistic taste or cultural sophistication in so many ways, but we're always, always wrong. And it strikes me that many people today are laboring under this same delusion. And one of the key purposes of free speech, of freedom of academic inquiry, is to ensure that we're not blinded and bound by prevailing ideology or limitations that would otherwise retard our progress. So that in the pursuit of truth, there can always be avenues open to finding it. And if freedom of this sort were wholly stripped away, then we might still be toiling under this delusion that the earth was the center of the universe or that women were subordinate to men because God made them in man's image or any number really of other silly things. And people have said that sunlight, in this case, under the, the scope of free speech, free inquiry, uh, and rationality is the best disinfectant, and I agree. And in the same spirit, Steve writes in his book, uh, disagreement is necessary in deliberations among mortals. As the saying goes, the more we disagree, the more chance there is that at least one of us is right. I think that's a good place to end this introduction. So there's a link to rationality in the description. Steve's website is stevenpinker.com. And you can also find Steve on Twitter at SAPinker. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this great conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Steve. This is going to be my my hundredth episode, and I thought rationality would be a great topic for two reasons, at least. And first, I mean, it's an ideal, not just in philosophy and all of academia, but the last 99 episodes of the show. And second, because in many ways, it seems to be under attack right now, not that this hasn't been the case often or always throughout the past. But before we get into the specifics, I'd like to start with why it became such an important topic for you recently, to the point that you wrote a book with precisely the title, Rationality. Like a lot of cognitive psychologists, I have long taught the research on human uh, irrationality, the famous work by Amos Tversky, Daniel Kahneman, Paul Slovic, uh, and others. Great, great fun to teach. I think it's something that every educated person should know. But it also raises the question of uh, whether we have a responsibility to teach the tools of rationality that aren't necessarily intuitive, but that uh, also should be part of everyone's education. Just everyone should uh, have some grasp of logic and probability, including uh, Bayesian reasoning, the uh, basic stance of game theory, 
expected utility theory, correlation and causation, uh, signal detection theory, that is trading off misses and false alarms in uh, consequential but uh, uncertain decision-making. Uh, I've long always thought that uh, there ought to be a course in the university that if I had my druthers, everyone would take on mm -hmm. these basic tools of reasoning that we social scientists and philosophers take for granted. They're, they're second nature to us, but uh, we learned them. And no matter what you study in a university, they are a part of sound reasoning. So I, uh, I uh, mounted a course in Harvard's general education um, curriculum on rationality. And um, a couple of things happened. One is, as soon as I told people I was teaching a course on uh, rationality, the first question people had is, oh, I've, that's great. You can explain to me how uh, Bayes' theorem works. No, no. The, the response was, okay, can you explain why the, why the world is losing its mind? <laughs> uh, can you explain QAnon and uh, New Age crystal he healing power and vaccine resistance, uh, conspiracy theories? So I ha knew that I had no choice but to deal with those topics. And those aren't a standard part of the uh, cognitive psychology curriculum on uh, heuristics, biases, fallacies, but, uh, but I knew that they had to be included. Then I offered the course and the pandemic happened halfway through. So I went online and I made them available to the, to the public and the, the lectures that is. And I found that they had a wide viewership, including some of my faculty colleagues, but also people elsewhere in the world. And um, my editor and literary agent said, uh, hey, this is, this is going to be your next book. Uh, so I, And I agreed. So the book Rationality combined tutorials on what I consider to be the seven uh, essential tools of, of reasoning uh, and a discussion of how and why people so often depart from them, from, from these normative models, as we call them in, in uh, philosophy and psychology and economics. Mm -hmm. Beyond Kahneman, Fersky, and Slovic, one reason I thought it might have been particularly interesting to you from a purely academic perspective, the QAnon politics and current cultural environment aside, is your belief in research on the close relationship between language as a distinctly human phenomenon, and then our capacity for reasoning and how those go hand in hand. It, indeed. And, and I, I did write a book called The Stuff of Thought. Uh, the subtitle was Language is a Window into Human Nature. And the uh, idea behind that book was that the kind of uh, meanings that language is uh, equipped to convey uh, are, are probably the, the way in which we conceptualize the world the way we, we, we uh, make sense of the world. That is, <clears throat> uh, nouns uh, could shed light on people's concepts of, of things or objects or entities. Verbs can shed light on agency and causation. Prepositions on how we uh, analyze the uh, space and matter. Tense on how we conceptualize time. And even moving beyond that, the uh, spread of new of names, uh, for which there's a, a rich uh, uh, literature in philosophy, of course, can um, shed light both on our the relationship between cognition and the world. Uh, that is, how do, how do our concepts connect to the the, the uh, classes or entities in the world? But also the uh, 
the, the dynamics of cultural virality. That is, if someone coins a new term, what leads it to catch on? And in cases where the rare cases in which each of us has complete say over the name for a thing, namely naming our babies, mm-hmm. uh, what uh, determines changes over time? And what does that say about our social relationships? But I also talked about why uh, certain zones of language, taboo terms like swearing and uh, uh, racial epithets, uh, engage our basically the limbic system of the brain, the, the our emotional circuitry. Why are, are some words considered to have dreadful magical powers, as in prayers and curses and um, uh, taboo terms? And also uh, another question of long interest to philosophers is uh, why is the uh, intended content of our language so often a departure from its literal content, the, the uh, areas explored by Paul Grice. We don't generally yeah. blurt out what we mean in so many words, but the listener has to connect the dots, read between the lines. And despite that, the huge literature in, uh, in the border between philosophy and linguistics on uh, conversational implicature, very few people ask the question, why do we bother? Why don't we just say what we mean? Uh, why, why, why the innuendo and the euphemism and the indirect speech and the polite requests and all that? That obviously ties into our social psychology. So that's another uh, dimension of psychology that I argued could be illuminated by uh, the use of language. Uh, there, there's one other connection, though, and uh, most scholars become interested in a topic for multiple reasons. But yet another reason that I became interested in rationality is that it's one of the drivers of human progress over the decades and centuries and millennia. And and I, in fact, I ended the book Rationality by suggesting that one of the um, drivers of moral progress has been people making arguments that great orators and philosophers and activists uh, trying to convince people that some practice of the time was inconsistent with values they claimed to hold or norms that they enforced elsewhere. You begin the book Rationality with a quote, and it is a quote by Bertrand Russell, and he says, man is a rational animal, so at least we have been told. Throughout a long life, I have searched diligently for evidence in favor of this statement. So far, I have not had the good fortune to come across it. So if we want to preserve this idea that man is rational, what must rational mean? I mean, do you conceive of rationality as a sort of dispositional quality in the sense that while not all people think or act reasonably, we evolved with this ability and are capable of acting in this way under the proper circumstances as evidenced by like the forward march of human progress, even though in other instances, like with the QAnon or vaccine conspiracies that you mentioned were clearly not acting rationally? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, one is forget March, forget, you know, relentless, forget inevitable. Um, that That's not how progress works. It's, it's, it's not like a March. It's a little, it's more like Sisyphus, except uh, a little more optimistic than, than uh, Sisyphus in that uh, it, it, it isn't zero advancement. But uh, that is the, it, it's like two steps forward, one step back. But um, progress uh, of the, the kind that I've tried to document quantitatively is something that we eke out through, uh, uh, I argue, applications of 
uh, reason in service of uh, human betterment. That is, obviously, reason can be deployed for anything, including better you know, bioweapons or nuclear weapons. But to the extent that we use it to cure disease, to uh, uh, push back against hunger, to resolve wars, to increase safety, uh, then we can make uh, piecemeal advances. And if we keep the, the ideas that work, if we try not to repeat our mistakes, then there can be uh, a forward vector to our movement, even though there's a lot of zigging and zagging. Um, mm -hmm. Second, the, that, that Bertrand Russell quote that I use as an epigraph for the first chapter, of course, was followed by another quote from uh, Spinoza. Mm -hmm. He that can carp in the most eloquent or acute manner at the weakness of the human mind is held by his fellows as almost divine. Uh, so that was a, a wry comment on the fact that it's kind of cheap to take pot shots at human reason. And indeed, there's plenty to take pot shots at because <clears throat> humans can be, uh, as we know, both from <clears throat> reading the news and research in cognitive psychology, excuse me, <clears throat> there's no shortage of blunders and fallacies and idiocies that people are capable of. But it's... Uh, to, to dismiss human rationality altogether, as Russell did, that, you know, that, that can't be right either. For one thing, Russell himself is a human being. He's not uh, you know, uh, an angel. He's not a, uh, a space alien. So if he's capable of reason, then you know, he's, he's a human being. And so are all of us when we either hold human uh, reasoning in practice up to a standard of rationality. Well, we have to be capable of entertaining that standard. But also, we have, you know, not all of us all the time, but we, our species has gone to the moon, invented vaccines, smartphones, figured out you know, DNA and the Big Bang and plate tectonics. Uh, also, in our everyday lives, we humans have infested the entire planet. We've managed to live in, in deserts and in the Arctic and in rainforests and savannas. Uh, we did it not because we're the, the fastest or, or, uh, uh, and best armed uh, or, or highest flying animal, but by, by our wits. We figured out ways of exploiting our environment, of, of extracting uh, calories, protein, often at the expense of other species, but that's because we've outwitted them. And people in their everyday lives couldn't last a day unless they had some degree of rationality. Um, fridges don't fill themselves with food, and, and gas doesn't put itself in the car, and kids don't uh, get off to school clothed and fed unless we uh, arrange the environment to make that ha happen. So there's got to be some big um, endowment of rationality that makes all those feats possible. And the challenge really for a, a psychologist and I guess also a philosopher is uh, how, how do you account both for the fact that we're capable of feats of rationality, but also of uh, such colossal and conspicuous uh, blunders. Finally, you asked about what <clears throat> the, the, the concept of rationality itself, and indeed, it can be used in two senses. There is the normative sense of what counts as rational, what are, what are the benchmarks, what's the ground truth, uh, what really does follow from what else, which collectively our, our, our best minds at their best moments try to articulate. Uh, and then there's the, and that is closer to philosophy. That's, that's the, the normative aspect. Then, of course, there's the psychological or descriptive or empirical aspect of how does the human brain work? What are, what are, the, um, 
what are, what are the pathways that it tends to take, either left to its own devices or with the help of tools that we've invented over the millennia and try to spread in, in education and uh, uh, writing. You mentioned that the problem or one problem is that we have to account for why we're capable on the one hand of these crazy feats like figuring out the Big Bang or creating COVID vaccines fueled by rationality. But then on the other hand, we have QAnon irrationality. And I think in if I'm remembering correctly, in the introduction to rationality, you said that our ancestors, or you described our ancestors, um, the hunter-gatherer ancestors, as cerebral problem solvers. And it seems like something has, we we evolved to have these feats of these features of rationality, but something has changed in our contemporary environment that has resulted in us no longer exhibiting these features at all times. I, I put it slightly differently, and even though I am, uh, <clears throat> I make uh, a, a lot of use of evolutionary psychology in, in all of my writings, but there is a, a, a kind of meme from evolutionary psychology, uh, at least a popular understanding, I think not that many evolutionary psychologists would subscribe to it, that I try to resist, which is, we evolved on the savanna, we could get eaten by a lion at any time, therefore the human brain is just constantly on the alert to any sign of danger, so we react uh, instinctively, uh, and that, that's why we fear the wrong things. That's why we act on hunches, because if we didn't, we'd get uh, eaten by predatory cats. Mm. Now, I, mean, I think there's a grain of truth to that, but it, it doesn't do our species justice, and it doesn't do evolutionary psychology justice, because we are we are, are deeply weird mammals, deeply weird primates, even uh, all mammals. Uh, are are nervous at a rustle in the, in the bushes that could portend a, a, a predator, but we've kind of gone beyond that. It, on top of those reflexes, we also figure out how the environment works and, and try to uh, outwit both predators and prey. And that's why I started the book with a fairly uh, a detailed uh, look into the lives of the uh, the the uh, San people of the Kalahari Desert some of the last surviving hunter-gatherers. Uh, and based on the fieldwork of Louis Liebenberg, a, uh, a tracking expert, he noted that they there's an awful lot of induction and deduction and I guess abduction and uh, debate and deliberation and reasoning from um, circumstantial evidence, uh, counterfactual reasoning, um, in the process of... Um, tracking animals, which he argues was one of the main forms of hunting that the hunter-gatherers engaged in, since you know we can't, we, we can't outrun an antelope. Uh, they're, they're much faster than we are. However, um, one advantage that we do have is that we, uh, we're naked, so we, don't, we can shed heat. We're bipedal, so we don't have that much surface area being baked by the sun. And uh, we sweat. Uh, so we can cool ourselves off. And so antelope are better at the the 100 yard dash, but we're better marathon runners. As long as we know which way to run, that is after an animal has darted over the horizon, uh, our ancestors were able to infer from the 
evidence they left behind, the, 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 the tracks and, and other spore droppings and, and uh, disturbed uh, uh, shrubbery, uh, which way they probably went based on kind of deep hypothetical reasoning of what kind of animal was likely to leave the track, what was its condition, what was its likely intention. And so we could slowly and steady, steadily pursue them until they keeled over from heat stroke and then we could dispatch them with a, a spear or a rock to the head. But it's cognition that made that style of hunting possible. And Liebenberg suggested that the skills involved in tracking, I don't think it's only involved in tracking, but they're an example of how the hunter-gatherers who are so easy to blame for our, uh, our, 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 our fallacies and biases and quick responses uh, actually were, lived by their wits and were, had to be pretty smart. Uh, that's, those are the brains that we inherited. And it isn't just just in tracking, but also in extracting poisons from uh, plants and insects and certain organs and animals, um, ways of, of uh, devising snares and traps and uh, ways of smoking animals out of burrows, multi-step reasoning that required a pretty um, sophisticated grasp of cause and effect, the, the assembly of um, uh, complex um, means and ends, and so on. Now, in terms of the modern environment, it's not that we no longer have to figure out how the physical world works. Every time we solve a problem, you know, we've got a, a wobbly table and we stick a, 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 a folded-up napkin under one of the legs. We're, we're reasoning about our physical environment. Here's what I think is special about the modern environment. It's all, almost the other way around. It's not that we it's, it's, uh, doesn't have opportunities to apply rationality, but it has opportunities that in realms that our ancestors could not conceivably have, have applied rationality to, such as what is the ultimate cause of disease and misfortune? What is the origin of the planet and the species? Um, how do plants and animals really work? What happened 100 years ago? Uh, how, how is power wielded and, and what are the decision-making um, processes of the, the people who have the most power. Now, these are things that in these realms which are beyond our everyday experience, they're not the um, actual physical things around us. They're, they occur uh, long ago in time at microscopic scales, at cosmic scales, um, in uh, remote uh, corridors of power that we can't eavesdrop in ourselves. We very recently have acquired the ability to reason in these more remote, cosmic, hypothetical domains. We've got science, we've got logic, we've got journalism, we've got professional history, we've got uh, 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 archives, records, data. All of these are gifts of the last couple of hundred years, basically since, since the Enlightenment. But we didn't evolve with those. And so when it comes to reasoning beyond our everyday experience, there, I think the default human mindset is reasoning is kind of beside the point because you can't know. There's no, there's nothing to go on. There's no, there's, there's no evidence anyway. And so, myth is a suitable way of understanding the world beyond the immediate senses. That is, what what should you believe about why bad things happen to good people? What should you believe about how? Uh, powerful people have directed the course of history. What should you believe about the origin of, uh, of humans and of life and the planet? Well, we should believe uplifting uh, morality tales. 
uh, ones that make you and your people look good. And I think the we divide the world into these zones of the immediate experience where we're we actually are pretty rational, and this more mythological, cosmic, hypothetical, abstract realm where we children of the Enlightenment think, well, we should be rational about that too. We should only believe things that are true. We should try to determine whether our beliefs are true. We should look at evidence. We should look at, we should develop better analytic tools. That's what is foreign to the human psyche. And because, and their evolution is relevant. Namely, forget 10,000 years ago, 200 years ago, there was nothing to go on. Uh, and, and so it's not surprising that we don't naturally think that these domains are proper um, applications of human rationality. Hmm. <clears throat> Returning for a moment to the Bushmen you were speaking about, do you conceive of the cognitive biases we alluded to earlier as shortcuts in a sense that just in fact don't cause problems most of the time for people like these Bushmen, but that save on cognitive resources? Is that, that is why the, we evolved them? I actually don't think that's, I wouldn't put it exactly that way. That is, it's, they, I don't think they are saving on cognitive resources because the, again, going back to the sod, they think long and hard about what which animal left those tracks or whether it's fresh or tired or old or young or male or female. Um, I, I want to move away from the idea that we only... Uh, that, that we're, we're constantly conserving uh, uh, mental resources, though, though we do. But I don't think that's the only problem. It's before there was science, before there was were data sets, what did you have to go on? Uh, the heuristics and biases that people like Tversky and Kahneman have documented aren't necessarily shortcuts. They're the best you can do before science exists existed, or uh, if you don't know about scientific resources. So for example, let's let's be concrete. The one of the major biases that I have uh, written about is the availability bias or the availability heuristic. Namely, to estimate uh, probability or risk, you see how uh, of a particular kind of event, you uh, recall a an instance of that event, an anecdote, an image, uh, and whatever is most available in memory is um, uh, a you use that as your estimate of how likely it is. So is uh, is it dangerous to swim in the ocean? Well, I read last week about someone who's eaten by a shark. So yeah, it really is dangerous. Uh, uh, as opposed to looking up the data, comparing, say, how likely are you to get eaten by a shark compared to how likely are you to die in a car crash driving to the beach? The car crashes don't tend to attract the attention that the shark attacks do. And so we uh, our, our heads are turned by the gory, vivid, memorable uh, anecdote. Now, I don't think it's saving time or saving resources. I think it's, uh, well, how many people have access to those data? Uh, how many people know that such data exists? Well, some do now, but no one did 100 years ago because those data didn't exist. There weren't government record-keeping agencies that kept track of, of, of uh, deaths from uh, different causes. And that was not true, not just a hundred years ago, but a thousand years ago and 10,000 years ago and a hundred thousand years ago. So we are, uh, intuitions about probability and risk 
are fed by what we have to go on, namely our own experience together with the rumor and hearsay that is the experience of other people. You know, that's all there was. And so we that's still what comes naturally to us. We have to be educated into the fact that we are the lucky beneficiaries of data and uh, e you know, and even then often data could be data sets can be have distorted by their own kinds of biases. Uh, but that's a, a not a natural lesson to learn to go to the it used to be go to an almanac. Now it's go to the internet and look up the best data. Now it's not surprising that that's not instinctive or not not intuitive. I'll mention one other reason that some of these heuristics and biases aren't um, just shortcuts. They're not just uh, ways of saving um, uh, cognitive effort. The other reason, and this is pointed out by Gerrit Gigerenzer, is that um, they're going to the data. Uh, it is inherently uncertain because the question is, which data? If I want to look at, say, what's likely to kill me, should I look at data for Americans? Should I look at data for uh, men? Should I look at data for men in their 60s? Should I look for the data for Ashkenazi Jews? Should I look for the data for you know, Ashkenazi Jews uh, with a family history of heart disease? Like, which data do you look at? Um, and there's no there's no correct answer because the smaller the category, the obviously the more relevant the data are, but the smaller the category, the fewer the data there are and the noisier the estimates. Now, when it comes to uh, you know, anecdotes, things that you've actually lived through or things that you've heard about from people in your neighborhood, people like you, it has a built-in advantage that it's far more apl uh, applicable to you. Now, the disadvantage, of course, is that it's a small sample size, sometimes only one, but it's just part of the trade-off between specificity and reliability, way over in the direction of specificity. But it's not inherently irrational, and it's not just a question of uh, uh, saving a few milliseconds of decision time. Hmm. Returning to another thing you mentioned earlier, you said that Myth is a suitable way of understanding the world beyond the immediate senses. Well, I wouldn't say suitable, but it is you know instinctive and natural. I think it's not suitable, and normatively, I would argue against it. But psychologically, that's the way we're put together. And what I am wondering is, is the idea that if we don't have these tools of these contemporary tools of rationality at our disposal, uh, you mentioned logic, critical thinking, probability, these sorts of things. It's natural that, or it's, it's not normative. It's not what we should be doing, but it's natural that we turn toward this mythology mindset. Yes. That's that, it, that in other words, it's a, a psychological claim that uh, in these more uh, remote, non-immediate hypothetical, metaphysical, counterfactual, historical, um, do microscopic domains, we, uh, we turn to, to myth rather than our best science. And the myth generally, very often, is moralistic. It holds out lessons for who's good, who's evil, uh, how one ought to behave. Now, do you conceive of some of the conspiracy theories that we mentioned earlier, like QAnon or vaccine hoaxes as being a product of this mythology mindset or no? 
Exactly. And that, in fact, I'm glad that you connected the dots there because that's why I had not yet brought that up, but that's exactly why I think it's relevant. Namely, it's not so clear that people who believe in these outlandish conspiracy theories, what we actually mean by believe, um, because in this domain of, uh, of the non-immediately experienced, uh, I think people don't think of them in the same way they think of, gee, is there beer in the fridge? Uh, as something that is factually true or false and that uh, where there's a way to find out. They think that the, the reason that you should believe it is because it's morally uplifting. It has the right uh, 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 morals. So, and the reason that I think that, and here I'm influenced by arguments from uh, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber and uh, uh, Bob Abelson and other social and cognitive psychologists, is that uh, it's kind of, People's actual commitment to some of these beliefs is a little squirrely. So, for example, people who promote these wicked, nefarious conspiracy theories, headed by an all directed by a shadowy but all-powerful uh, government, um, how come they're just blurting them out in, in in their manifestos and in their their their, their conversations? Aren't they worried about being uh, you know, uh, uh, hurried away to the gulag or to be silenced if it's such an all-powerful conspiracy. It's a, there's a little bit of a gaming aspect to it, uh, and in fact, people have compared QAnon to a multi-person online game. They search for, for clues. It's, it's a lot of fun. They try out. People compete with each other for different ways of interpreting uh, a, a ambiguous evidence, and um, and the actions that people take are really not commensurate often with the gravity of the so-called beliefs. Again, I'll give an example from Mercier. Uh, you noted that some of the believers in QAnon and, and in Pizzagate, the predecessor of QAnon, according to which Hillary Clinton ran a child sex ring out of a Washington pizzeria. You know, if you really believe that you know, children are being raped in the basement of a pizzeria, uh, what you'd ordinarily do is call the police. But what believers in this conspiracy theory did is you know, they leave a one-star review on Yelp. For the, for the pizzeria. So there's a disconnect between how you actually act and what you supposedly believe, which suggests that these beliefs are really more uh, kind of affirmations of a kind of faith, uh, loyalty to a particular coalition, than they are true epistemic commitments to a state of affairs. Another way you could, you could test this is by seeing how much people are willing to bet on them, on these beliefs. You know, should they become um, every verifiable? Uh, I don't know if that's ever been done, but I and in some cases there probably are true believers, but I suspect in a lot of cases people would not be willing to put their money where their mouths are. Something I find striking, though, about these conspiracy theories is that many aren't formulated in the absence of these rational faculties, but in the absence of using them properly. So I recall, this was sort of funny to me, somebody, a flat earther that I was talking to was explaining to me why we never went to the moon. And their explanation employed uh, the Van Allen radiation belts. They said that we could never get the van, get past the Van Allen radiation belts because we would all be obliterated by the radiation. And it's the same with the vaccine conspiracy theories. People suddenly become experts in mRNA and all sorts of other issues. 
oh yes, the 9-11 truthers say that the, uh, that the heat of the uh, inferno was not enough to melt steel. Um, you know, ignoring the fact that steel didn't have to melt, all it had to do was weaken, but, but yes. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, no, you're right. People will deploy their rational faculties uh, to, uh, to, to prop up these beliefs uh, yeah, uh, yeah, up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And you write in the book, though, about the contrast between irrationality within an individual on the one hand and irrationality within a community on the other. And is this not just an issue of scale? Because while certainly, I mean, irrational beliefs can be transmitted quickly within a community, but it's not as if individuals are immune to their own paranoias or superstitions or other fallacious modes of thought. But maybe this is where uh, things like motivated reasoning and, and the my side bias come in. Yeah, no, I'm glad, you, and I'm glad you brought that up. It is, it is germane. So, yes, in a sense, it, uh, although it's not just a matter of scale, there are uh, aspects of collective rationality that are a matter of scale, sometimes called the wisdom of crowds. And one famous example, I think, it was made made uh, famous by a TED talk. Uh, you, you 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 pull a cow on the stage. Uh, literally, the speaker pulls a cow on stage. I forget who, who it was, and asks people to estimate its weight. And how much does a cow weigh? It beats me. You, you force me to make a guess. I'll make a guess. And so people uh, write their guess on a slip of paper. They hand them to the front. Someone very quickly pulls out a calculator, does the average. It turns out the average of the three or four hundred people in the audience is within the correct weight of the cow to like a pound or something uncanny wow. like that. So th- that is a case of scale where you average people's proximate beliefs and it gets closer and closer to reality. Um, so I think that exists, but that that isn't exactly what I had in mind because uh, if it's just a question of scale, there's also the madness of crowds. Uh, people um, uh, sign on to millennial cults and entire societies can uh, be under the subject of a del- delusions like um, uh, you know, Nazi Germany. Uh, I think what is crucial is together with scale, and maybe even instead of scale, it's having certain um, norms and rules and procedures that are explicitly designed to push the collective in the direction of greater truth, greater reason, despite the flaws in human nature. So there are things like, now all of them are imperfect, but put them together and they, 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 they can be better than an unaided single Things like um, peer review, things like uh, freedom of speech of the press so that ideas can be criticized, uh, things like demand for empirical testing, things like uh, adversarial uh, procedures where a proponent and an opponent debate something and a uh, audience uh, allows themselves to be persuaded or not. Uh, deliberative democracy, separation of powers, checks and balances. So all of these, unless a community has implemented these rules, they could just become victims of the madness of crowds, the most spellbinding orator, the most viral uh, and attractive uh, theory. It's only if both you have these norms and the norms themselves are explicitly designed to uh, uh, approach the truth. I think it's 
that that is how collectives of minds can be more rational than, than individual minds. When we contrast the flaws and fallacies, biases of uh, people against our best benchmarks, against our ground truth, these are always accomplishments of the entire you know, scientific, philosophical, and mathematical establishment. Now, again, these rules aren't foolproof, and we know that peer review has problems, and and uh, there there can be academic cults, scientific personality cults, but uh, the rules themselves have to be subject to rational scrutiny and replaced by better ones when their their own flaws are exposed. Hmm. And two key terms you bring up in the book that are more aligned with the, or more relevant to the irrationality of groups rather than the rationality of groups are rumor and folk wisdom. And am I right in imagining that there is probably lots and lots of very fascinating literature in the annals of psychology journals about just why our otherwise largely rational faculties are so susceptible to them? Yeah, I don't know if it's large, um, but but there are there are indeed certain kind of folk intuitions that are um, deeply rooted and that that uh, probably were the best that our ancestors could do in a pre scientific environment. For example, and and this is something that has been developed by uh, often by um, evolutionary psychologists and cognitive development researchers like my my colleague Susan Carey, uh, who just retired. I saw. Who just retired uh, just uh, last week? Yes, mm-hmm. I, I uh, actually just interviewed your your former colleague uh, Paul Bloom, and we were talk we were talking about her her work. We also talked a bit about your paper with the first paper he published. The two of your you you published it together about language and evolution, and he was telling me I thought this was very funny that you two were going to debate uh, Chomsky and. Stephen Jay Gould, and he was a bit terrified about it. And then Chomsky's back went out, and it just never happened. Well, we did have a public debate with Stephen Jay Gould and um, Massimo Piatelli Palmarini. Okay. Uh, it was uh, an associate of Chomsky, and uh, uh, it was uh, Massimo who uh, was the impresario for the famous Chomsky Piaget debate in the mid 70s. Um, and Massimo still still active, and Massimo had written a paper in cognition. Uh, which captured some of the views of Chomsky. So he was a natural uh, proponent for you. And it was Massimo's paper that egged Paul and me on to, to write our uh, paper, Natural Language and Natural Selection. But getting back to your question, I think we, we all, for example, approach um, chemistry and biology with essentialist intuitions, that there is a kind of invisible substance or core or essence that gives living things, their their power and their properties. We are teleologists. We think just because the same way that our own lives are directed by our goals, our, our plans, our projects, our artifacts clearly are designed with a function in mind. We tend to think that the laws of the universe have a, a purpose or a goal. Uh, we're, we're in, and this is a an idea that Paul himself has uh, pushed that we're intuitive dualists. We think that that we're composed of minds and bodies which could part company. All of these intuitions, I think, feed a lot of the beliefs that modern science has shown to be irrational. Um, That is, that we have a soul as opposed to 
thought and consciousness coming out of patterns of processing in the brain, that we have an essence as opposed to uh, being composed of, of uh, molecular biology, of, of little, tiny little gears and springs and magnets, that uh, the laws of uh, the universe care about our well-being as opposed to, or care about anything as opposed to being strictly um, causal and forward-looking, not uh, causal and, and um, I should say, uh, determined by the present, not goal-directed. And these the mismatch between the view of the world provided by our best science and the view of the world that's built into our intuitions is another source of irrationality. A scientific education consists not just of learning science, but consists of, of learning folk intuitions, at least ideally. With uh, regard to this, you mentioned Paul has argued that humans are intuitive dualists this is uh, when i talked to chomsky he had he said something i thought was very funny i don't think he meant it as a joke but he said one way in which philosophy has gone wrong is that philosophers insist on treating everything above the head above the neck differently from everything uh, below the neck and i i got a chuckle out of that but yeah well he's, he's often made that comparison in particular to uh as a kind of plausibility preparation for the idea that uh, language and uh, other aspects of the mind are innately organized in the same way that the way Chomsky does it as well. You know, no one would say you learn to have a heart or learn to have a, you know, a spleen or a kidney. Why do we say we learn to have a, a language faculty? Well, I'd like to shift slightly maybe for the last 15 or so minutes of our talk. And your last book was on the Enlightenment, I mean, before rationality. And the historical movement aside, just how do you think of Enlightenment or humanism? And how, though, does it explicitly relate to rationality? Yeah, it's, um, and I'm glad that you made that distinction because the, the book was not intended to be. Uh, uh, historical homage to right. a bunch of guys who wrote in the late uh, 18th, 18th century, but rather to the, uh, as a rubric for certain ideals that were most uh, forcefully articulated in that, that era, but it's the ideals that I've, I, would, I tried to promote. No, the, the, uh, those were kind of expressed in the subtitle of the book, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. So it begins with reason, that is, we should... Uh, uh, figure out the world and our lives and, and our morality by the application of reason rather than alternatives like revelation, tradition, dogma, intuitive certainty. That science is, I think, just the application of reason to the natural world. Humanism is the moral commitment to human flourishing as the, the goal of our striding, the moral goal, as opposed to alternatives such as carrying out commandments in scripture, um, achieving feats of heroic greatness, uh, striving for the uh, dominance or preeminence of a particular race or ethnic group or nation. And finally, progress is the uh, <clears throat> predicted outcome of applying reason and science to human well-being, namely that it should be possible. Namely, there's a, uh, we could be... Um, uh, uh, empowered or energized or and reassured that applying reason to human well-being is worthwhile 
by the fact that when we do it, we can occasionally succeed. And again, the historical movement aside, because I'm not sure what was happening in this time period, but is one of the at least contemporary principles of enlightenment free speech? Uh, yeah, I, w- I would say so, because um, it is a, uh, uh, it- it's an implication of the combination of rationality as an ideal and a recognition of the flaws in human uh, reasoning. Namely, if you want to get closer to the truth, tro- closer to coherence, closer to morally defensible positions, you can't rely on you know, one guy, you can't rely even on one clique, you can't rely on dogma, on brute force, because those are likely to lead us astray. It's only by uh, uh, venturing ideas and uh, evaluating them that we have any hope of uh, uh, of approaching or implementing these normative ideals of rationality. And this, of course, I mean, presupposes that the listeners or even the speakers have this rational faculty endowed in them, and they aren't going to uh, twist words or misinterpret them or spout conspiracy theories and become swayed by them. Well, and some some will, but not all of them all the time. Uh, to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, you can't fool all the people all the time, at least mm. what we hope we can't. Uh, that uh, the the... Um, there are clearly going to be people who are beyond the reach of reason. So when people say, well, how are you going to convince a um, devotee of QAnon that there isn't a, 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 a cabal of pedophiles in the deep state? Um, you know, Maybe you can't. It's like the question, how are you going to convince the Pope that Jesus did not rise from the dead and was not the Son of God? Well, the answer is you can't. I mean, <laughs> you shouldn't try. That's hopeless. But fortunately, not everyone is the Pope. Uh, there are um, people who are at the you know at the fringes of the or not at the core of these conspiracy uh, communities who you know aren't that committed and they might be open to reason. There are new babies born all the time and they they weren't born with the uh, uh, belief in QAnon or, or or Catholicism or anything else. Um, so there are uh, there are audiences that are worth trying to persuade uh, and. Everyone is, in a sense, committed to reason in that everyone believes their own beliefs are rational. That is, if you, and this is a point made by Thomas Nagel and, and others, that um, the case for relativism, subjectivism, is inherently compromised by the fact that a very few proponents of any position, including relativism and subjectivism, are willing to apply it to themselves. Namely, if you say, uh, okay, you are casting doubt on, on on rationality. Is what you just said rational? Or there's no such thing as objectivity. And you can say, well, is that statement objective? If it isn't, why should I believe it? Uh, and uh, if it is, well, you've just contradicted yourself. So there is, you know, and I think that's not just a, a gambit. It's not just a, a kind of a, a debating trick. But it is there, it, it does speak to why you know, I do think over the long run, given free speech, given a community of people uh, committed to the truth, the, the, the truth does uh, kind of leak out. It, it, we, we eke it out bit by bit. And that's just because we, we, we just can't 
get away from rationality uh, if we want to be taken seriously, any of us, including proponents of subjectivity and uh, relativism and uh, non-reason. And these conspiracy theories aside, though, you, you write in your introduction to rationality that some people believe analytical thinking must be subordinated to social justice. And were there any examples in particular that you had in mind in writing that? Or are there any that come to mind now where people have held this belief? Oh my goodness! Uh, yes, it's the, it's kind of becoming the it's the ascendant uh, attitude in universities. Uh, the uh, uh, beliefs such as do men and women differ on average in their uh, cognitive or personality characteristics? Are uh, police shootings racially biased? Um, is uh, is there such a thing as rapid onset gender dysphoria? And are there uh, social influences in the uh, massive growth of transgender um, adolescents or pre-adolescents? Uh, good luck in saying that we should try to get to the bottom of those answers by looking at, at uh, data. Those are cases where merely uh, uh, Proposing, even asking those questions can sometimes teach people and there can be an, uh, uh, efforts to, to cancel them for right. uh, this. The acceptable belief is the one that aligns with certain uh, supposedly social justice objectives. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's somewhat ironic that to argue that analytical thinking must be subordinated to social justice requires analytical thinking to do so. But just to play devil's advocate with some of these cases, maybe, are there not cases in which this might be the right thing to do? I mean, you write that we ought to follow reason, but I'm asking if you think that there are places that we oughtn't follow it, or if you can at least reconstruct the opinion or the the views or the beliefs of the the quote unquote social justice warriors who do who do feel this way, and give them a charitable case. I mean, I think the most charitable case is that if someone is willfully ignorant of uh, particular facts in order to pursue a clearly harmful agenda, you know, a Nazi who really believes that Jews are a parasitical race, uh, you know, contrary to any kind of evidence. Uh, it is legitimate not to give them you know, credit for simply uh, believing something for which there's a lot of evidence or that Africans are inherently suited to slavery. You know, I think nowadays one doesn't have to indulge that belief because it's so, the, the consequences are so harmful and the uh, epistemic basis of the belief so uh, not even tenuous but you know, non-existent that one can attribute malevolent motives. To, sub, to people who are wall themselves off from obvious evidence that their beliefs are false. Um, but I, I think a, the widest possible berth has to be carved out for uh, analytic thinking, reason, rationality, simply because the uh, basis for any for social justice has to be a factual understanding of the world, who is suffering, who isn't, what will make people's lives better, what will make it worse. Uh, what are the causes of uh, of current suffering and how 
uh, can we best alleviate them? And the fact that in in uh, history, a lot of the great movements towards social justice did not blow off reason. Quite the contrary, as I as I showed in the final chapter, these uh, they made very rigorous analytic um, arguments. Frederick Douglass was not he was an orator, not just in the sense of that the, the music and poetry of his speech, but he was razor sharp in showing why the case for slavery at the time was completely bogus. You know, likewise, um, the the case for democracy as opposed to ab- absolute monarchy, the case for the political equality of women, the case for the, the civil rights movement in, in the 60s, the case for gay rights. You didn't have to marginalize reason. Reason was on the right side. Hmm. And you mentioned that within the academy, within universities, these social justice issues are standing in the way of analytical thinking. And in this sort of toolbox of rational of rationality, you mentioned we have, I mean, logic, critical thinking, probability, decision theory, all of these things. Your colleagues at Stanford, Yale, Princeton, all of these places, many of them are highly educated and skilled in these areas, but at the same time, they might believe that rationality should be, or analytic th- analytical thinking should be subjugated to social justice. And what is the pitch that you would make to try to sway them from this view? Well, that... Um they themselves in pursuing that argument are committing themselves to uh, objectivity, rationality, reason. Um, If not, then uh, the rest of us are free to blow off anything that they say. And since they probably don't want everyone to blow off what they say, they they have to make the case that they're applying reason to make the arguments that that, that they're making. Um, That's number one. Number two, that they themselves are have to be committed to certain uh, empirical, uh, objectivist, realist um, commitments in making their own sacred arguments. Like, is climate change real? Are there uh, is is racism pervasive? Uh, is are vaccines effective? Is human activity warming the planet? Um, all, all of those cases they would reject claims that we should subordinate uh, reason and evidence to uh, moralistic thinking. And historically, again, I I would um, bring up the fact that uh, it was never necessary to repress speech in order to advance social justice in the case of the civil rights movement, slavery, women's empowerment, and so on. Uh, Quite the contrary, it was repression of speech that often uh, was used against the forces of social progress in, in, in their day. Uh, it was the uh, advocates of abolition who were often criminalized or of gay rights. Hmm. And since this is uh, very hot news, it's about like a, a month old at this point. In April, you formed, along with I think over a, a hundred other Harvard faculty, I, and I don't know how many it is now, the Council on Academic Freedom, which you co-lead. Just what is it, and what is the purpose or goal of the council? How's it going to work? It's quite new. Um, it's going to, it has several goals. One of them is to uh, try to educate the 
greater Harvard community about the uh, what academic freedom and, and, and freedom of speech consists of and what are the uh, arguments for it. Uh, a second is to provide support, both institutional and emotional, for people who are targets of uh, repression and smear campaigns and uh, libel, because it can be uh, uh, devastating. A third is to try to uh, get our own administrators to apply policies that are already on the books for the protection of uh, academic freedom, um, that, um, that someone cannot be punished or fired or silenced for a recent opinion, and also to apply pressure when a, a dean, an administrator, is being uh, uh, pressured by um, uh, an activist group, a social media mob, to, uh, uh, to, to repress speech or freedom or punish an individual, to push back from the other side. Because we have seen very often university administrators just want to make trouble go away as quickly as possible. So they will accede to any pressure campaign to, uh, to, to, to not make waves, to make it go away. If by applying pressure in the other direction, we hope to force them to actually make a reasoned decision instead of the most expedient um, action or verbiage that will make a problem go away. You mentioned that part of the council's purpose is to offer emotional and institutional support. And I'm wondering if you've personally had work or opinion suppressed or felt the pressure to do so in the face of potential retaliation from activists or colleagues? And, and if so, I mean, what sort of toll this took on you? Yeah, not not at Harvard, and I've got to say, and I, in fact, I did say this in the Boston Globe op-ed announcing the, the council. Uh, I've done just fine at Harvard. My my department chairs, deans, presidents, provosts—all I'm very supportive. I've never had, I personally have not had any problems. Uh, I, I have had uh, some nuisances uh, outside of Harvard. I was the the target of a uh, petition that my uh, may be removed from a list of experts from the Linguistic Society of America, and that I be uh, stripped of my um, distinguished fellow status. It didn't uh, go anywhere. They, the LSA did not accede to those demands. But based on some opinions that I expressed in a, in a, in a set of tweets, um, the uh, you know that was even even if it had gone through, which it hadn't, it would be a pretty minor uh, uh, nuisance. The but it, but I was the uh, the target, and I think the damage that it did was not to me. Um, because you know, I still have it on my on my CV, and you know, I take it off. It, it's a pretty pretty minor inconvenience, but rather the message that it sends to people who are less powerful than me, who don't have a tenured position, hard money position at a brand name university, it's putting them on notice that if you uh, express an opinion that runs afoul of the current orthodoxy, uh, you're in our sights. Your your career will be um, sidelined or ruined. Well, Steve, this was really a terrific cap to uh, 100 episodes of my show. So thanks so much for your generosity, your time, and, and joining me for this important conversation. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Robinson. And thanks for, uh, for, for allowing me to be the, the, the centennial or century <laughs> or 100th guest. Real honor. Thank you. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already smash all those buttons and also if you haven't followed me on uh twitter at robinson Earhart, or if you're not 
joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats. Please do so.